I'm going to read for Samuel 18, and then I'll be referring to verses in chapter 19. For Samuel chapters 18 and 19, hear the word of the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at that time, when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Macholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. 
So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you're a college sports fan, particularly a college football fan, this is the time of year for you, or maybe not, because very few teams have the success that we would like them to have. You may be a fan of one of those teams that always breaks your heart. They're always almost there, but they always fall short. Or you may be like some fans that are kind of fair-weather fans. When a team is winning, they get excited about that team. They jump on the bandwagon, and they all of a sudden become fans. I'm a little bit like that. I don't really watch. I haven't watched a full game this whole season. But uh, when it comes to the Florida teams, I tend to back the Florida team that's winning that year. That seems to be my team of the year. Now, that's hard for Miami, diehard Miami, or University of Florida, or Florida State fans to understand. But if you ask me, which is my favorite team? It's like, well, whichever one is kind of doing better this year and has the best chance, that's the team that I'm in favor of. And that's, that's a tendency. It's easy to back a winner in sports. It's easy to get on board with a winner in politics. It's easy to get on board with a winner in entertainment. It's easy to get very excited about whoever is the most famous uh, entertainer at this point and, and become a fan. It's easy to love a winner, but it's also, it's also possible to be envious of a winner. And we see those two dynamics play out in this, uh, this section of First Samuel. It looks like everybody is loving this new winner called David, the one who last week, as we saw, was able to cha- uh, beat the champion from the, the Philistines and win a great victory for the people of God. Now, there has been some confusion uh, in our own minds, but about how things fit together here. When was David in Saul's employment and how permanent was that employment? But however that might have been in the chapters leading up to this chapter, we find in verse 2 of chapter 18 that David had permanent employment and he wasn't able to go back. It said, verse verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So finally, whatever the arrangement might have been in the past, now we have a permanent situation in which David is attached to Saul. And Saul gave him... A military command, if you look at verse 5, it says Saul set him over the men of war. And then if you look at verse 13, he gave him an early promotion as well. Verse 13 says, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. So he had a thousand men under his command. And the reason why David went up through the ranks so quickly was because he was so successful. You may have heard some repeated phrases throughout these two chapters, and one of the phrases that keeps being repeated is about the success of David. Verse 5, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Uh, Verse 14 as well, it says, uh, and David had success in all his undertakings. Verse 15, and when Saul saw that he had great success... And then the last verse, verse 30 of chapter 18, uh, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. Now, why? So he was promoted because he was successful, but why was he successful? 
And the text explains that as well with another repeated phrase. And when you find these repeated phrases, you should highlight those in your mind and say, this is what the text is getting at. In verse 12, we learn that the Lord was with David. Verse 12, it says, the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And then in verse 28, we, say, we learned Saul saw that uh, saw and knew that the Lord was with David. And then in verse 14, if you go back to verse 14, we have the two connected, the success of David and the presence of the Lord. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Now, we have a winner, don't we? The Lord's with him, and he has more success than everyone else, and so we find that everybody loved David. They backed the winner. Saul's son, Jonathan, at the beginning of chapter 18, the first verse, it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that is David speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then in verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And not only did he love him as his own soul, as a a dear friend, he also symbolically handed the kingdom over to David. This is remarkable, that the one who would have been in line for the kingdom, it says he made a covenant, he cut, that's the Hebrew expression, he cut a covenant with David, and then he stripped off his royal robes, his royal attire, and not only that, but he stripped off his royal authority, the military authority. It says he took off his robe, he gave it to David, verse 4, his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. You you remember that Saul had tried to give his armor to David, but it, it didn't work for him. But now we have the son doing the same thing. We have him giving him his armor, symbolically handing the kingdom over to him. So that's the first one. It says that Jonathan... The son of Saul loved David. But not only the son of Saul loved David, but the daughter of Saul loved David as well. Michal, there was this kind of uh, intent to give the elder daughter Merab, but that didn't work out. David was reticent to marry into the, the family of Saul. And it seems like he was reticent because he didn't have an, a, a bride price. He wasn't able to, to come up. He, he was a shepherd. His family was prosperous, but probably not prosperous enough to buy his way into the royal family. And so he was, he was holding back. And then Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. We don't know that Merab loved David, but Michal loved David. It says that in verse 20. And it also says it in verse 28. Saul's daughter loved him, and she loved him and wanted to marry him. But not only that. Not only Jonathan, not only McCall. We find in verse 15 that all Israel and Judah, rather verse 16, all Israel and Judah loved David. Why? For he went out and came in before him, before them. What's that mean? He went out to fight their battles and he lived to fight another day. He came back. He went out and he came in before. And then in verse 22, we find this again, that all Saul's servants loved David. David. Now, this is, these are on Saul's lips here. This is kind of underhanded, but in Saul's words, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, which wasn't exactly true, as we'll see, and all his servants love you. But that seems to be true, that all Saul's servants 
uh, loved David. But we've already read in chapter 16, verse 21, that Saul loved David. When he first encountered David, he loved David. So it looks like everybody loved this winner. Everybody loved David, except Saul's affections for him began to change. And we, we find this in verse 6. Uh, we find in verse 6, they were coming home. David was returning from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy, musical instruments. And they had, they had composed a little ditty, a, a little uh, victory chant. And they said, Saul has struck down his thousands. So they're praising Saul. But then they added, David his ten thousands. And that was galling to Saul. He, he, he said, how is this possible? This young upstart, how are they attributing to him ten thousands in his victories, and to me, only thousands? And then it says, and what more can he have, verse 8, what more can he have but the kingdom? You see, Saul knew that he had been rejected. Saul knew that his dynasty had been rejected. And so he's looking out for who it would be that would supplant him and who better than this victorious young upstart David. And he eyed him, it says, in verse 9, with suspicion. Then we have the first attempt on David's life from Saul. Verse 10. And here we have that expression that we've seen before about a harmful spirit from God. And you remember we saw that there were three persons on which the, 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 the spirit of the Lord rushed. The spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson. The spirit of the Lord rushed on Saul. The spirit of the Lord rushed on David. That's used only of those three, that, that expression, that verb rushed on. But now we see that same verb here in the case of Saul, but it says a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Now another spirit is rushing upon Saul. And it says in verse 10, our translation, interestingly, keep this in mind, our translation says, and he raved within his house. The verb is prophesied. He prophesied within his house. Now keep that in mind because we're going to get back to prophecy in chapter 19. He prophesied within his house while David was playing the lyre, so he's still the court musician, as he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand, which was probably not unusual, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. So David was able to escape. Saul was having one of his fits. And then it says that he was not only angry um, and wanting to kill him, but he was afraid of him. He was afraid of him. Verse 12 Saul was afraid of David. Verse 15, he stood in fearful awe of him. Verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David. But now he had a different plan that he would use his daughters, one of his daughters, to get David killed. And that's the plan about marrying him to one of the daughters and saying, oh, for a bride price, well, I just want a, a piece of the flesh of just a hundred Philistines. So sending David out to, to kill a hundred Philistines. And so what does David do? He kills 200. And so they're, remember, they're in war. This was not just some sort of arbitrary slaughter. They're in war with the Philistines. And so David doubles the bride price. And then that made Saul even more afraid. So he wasn't able to get David killed by the Philistines. 
uh, but rather he was even more successful in that endeavor. And by the way, this may get a bit repetitive, but as we go through the rest of 1 Samuel, much of the rest of 1 Samuel are the attempts by Saul to kill David. And we'll see a number of those attempts. We'll see four of them in chapter 19. And this will set up what's going to happen in the rest of this book. What we have in, in, in chapter 19, we have the establishment of this pattern. We already saw it. Uh, the first time that he hurled the spear, David was able to escape. And this is what we'll see time after time in the rest of this book. Saul makes an attempt. David escapes. Saul makes an attempt, David escapes. And we see that pattern in chapter 19 very clearly. And so the first great escape in chapter 19 is in verses 1 to 8. And what we have in verses 1 to 8, we have Saul speaking to Jonathan, his son. He may not have known how much affection there was between Jonathan and David. He may not have known that he had symbolically handed over the power of the kingdom to David. But it says he spoke to Jonathan and his son, to all his servants, that they should kill David. But here, Jonathan speaks up. He delighted in David, it says. And so he he hid David. He said, you stay here. I'm going to talk to my father. And then he intercedes for David. And he presented some very convincing arguments in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 19. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, argument number one, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. He's he's done nothing against you. And second argument, and because of his deeds, they've brought good to you. Not only has he not done anything bad to you, but he has done good to you. And then what did he do? He took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. So he became the instrument of God's salvation, and that benefited you. You saw it, Father, and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So he's done nothing against you. He's only done something for you and for all Israel. You were happy when you saw it. And if you kill him, you will be killing an innocent man. And these were convincing arguments, and they convinced Saul. And so Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, verse 6, and he made an oath, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So then Jonathan calls David. Jonathan reports to him all these things. Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So the first escape is because of the intercession of Saul. It looks like they're reconciled. looks like everything's going to be fine from there on out, except it wasn't. In verse 8, we have the beginning of the second great escape. There was war again. David went out. He fought with the Philistines, struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And then here again, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. Haven't we read something like this before? And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. So once again, the same attempt. Now notice that the author, there's some very clever writing in here. In verse 8, there are two verbs that are used, struck and fled, struck and fled. It says that David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled. So strike and flee. And then in verse 10, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled. 
So first it's David striking the Philistines and the Philistines fleeing, and now it's Saul's trying to strike his own armor bearer, his own court musician, and that one has to flee. And then there's another verb that he introduces here, escape, and escaped that night. So that's the second, the second great escape. And then we have in verse 11, the beginning of the third attempt. Well, it's actually the fourth because we had one in chapter 18, but the third attempt here in chapter 19. And here we have Saul sending messengers to David's house to kill him in the morning. So they surround the house, apparently. They're going to wait for him in the morning. And here, McCall helps David, the daughter of Saul. And so she, she uses deception. She, she dresses up the bed to look like somebody's lying there and says David's sick. And so buys a little bit of time for David. And then David's able to escape. And then McCall says to her father, well... Uh, he was going to kill me if I didn't let him go. So she deceives her own father, but she does that in favor of her husband, David. Now notice, we have Jonathan is on David's side. We have McCall is on David's side. They're lining up against their own father in favor of David. And this third attempt, so he fled from his house, and now we find somebody that we haven't heard from in a little while, verse 18, Samuel comes back into the picture the aged Samuel. Now David fled and escaped. So here's this verb again. If you look at verse, uh, verse 10, he fled and escaped. Uh, verse 11, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And verse 12, so McCall let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. And then in, in verse uh, in verse 17, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Saul asking his daughter, McCall. And then in verse 18, now David fled and escaped. So here we have these repeated fled and escaped, fled and escaped. And now he went to Samuel. And he goes to Samuel at Ramah. And it was told to Saul, verse 18, they told him uh, what had happened. Well, he had, rather, he had told, he told Samuel what Saul had done to him. And he, he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told to Saul in verse 19, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. So here we have the fourth attempt in this chapter. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, here once again, a spirit of God or the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Do you remember this is what happened when he first tried to kill David? Uh, that first attempt in chapter 19. A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he, it translated here, raved, but it's he prophesied within his house. Now he sends these messengers after David and they are incapacitated by a spirit from God. It's kind of ambiguous. A spirit is the harmful spirit or is it the spirit of the Lord? It's a spirit from God who comes upon them, and they also prophesy. And then verse 21, it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, second wave of messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. So three waves of messengers, they're overcome by the spirit of the Lord or a perhaps a harmful spirit from God, and they are incapacitated, unable to arrest David because they are prophesying. And then 
Saul says, well, if you, if you want to have a job done right, you have to what? Do it yourself. And so Saul goes, verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are in Nioth in Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And, and once again, the spirit of God or a spirit from God came upon him also as he went, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? So they keep getting incapacitated by a spirit or the spirit of the Lord. And this is the third time that Saul is said to prophesy. Do you remember when he was first called to be king? The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he prophesied. And then the second time is in chapter 18. A harmful spirit from God came upon him and he prophesied. And now here it's kind of ambiguous. It says a spirit of God or the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied. So three times he prophesies. And uh, the first time was to prepare him for service as God's anointed one. The second time was to, to d- disturb his mind, and the third time was to incapacitate him and strip the kingdom from him. So it's interesting to note that, as we find in the New Testament, we need to test prophecy, don't we? Because some of this prophesying was very explicitly from a harmful spirit from the Lord, whereas others were from the spirit of the Lord. But I want you to notice something. And that's how these two chapters hang together. These two chapters have what's called an inclusio, which is like bookending. And that is starting with an idea and finishing with the same idea. And it's a beautiful way to tie together a section of literature. Because we start this section in chapter 18 with Jonathan stripping off his clothes. And then we end in chapter 19 with Saul, his father, stripping off his clothes. And we saw in the case of Jonathan that he was willingly handing the kingdom over to David by stripping off his royal accoutrements, his his equipment. And now we find at the end of chapter 19, Saul doing the same thing, but unwillingly, against his will, being overcome by the spirit of the Lord or this spirit that comes from God, symbolizing the transfer of the kingdom to David, in Jonathan's case, willingly, in Saul's case, unwillingly. So what do we have here as we're going through this story? We've noticed, sadly, as we have gone through 1 Samuel, the, the undoing of Saul, haven't we? We've noticed that he started really well. He started humbly. He started submissively. He started boldly. He started faithfully. And then he made one big mistake and he lost the dynasty, or the kingdom. Then he, then he, another big mistake, and he lost the dynasty. And now he seems to be losing some touch with reality, considering one of his most, most faithful servants to be his enemy. So what we have here in these chapters is the tragedy is complete. The undoing of Saul has become complete. The first anointed one, Saul was the first anointed king, is now the first anti-anointed one. 
He is now against the anointed king. The, the one who should have been the anointed of the Lord is now opposed to the anointed of the Lord. Or, if we could use the Greek word for anointed that we use in English, the first Christ, that is the first Messiah, the first anointed one, that's what all those mean, the first Christ turned into the first anti-Christ. That's what we have, the tragedy here, the first Christ becoming the first anti-Christ. And he tried to do what all anti-Christs do. Antichrists, by definition, are against the Christ. They're against the anointed. They're against the Messiah. And this is what they always do. And now Saul is doing what antichrists always do. We, we meet one in the Psalms. Well, not one. We meet them all that are, are mentioned here in Psalm chapter 2, where the psalmist asks this question, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his whom? His anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So as David, we saw this last week, David is a type or a prototype or a foreshadowing or an antecedent of the Christ. Now we have Saul, tragically, becoming that prototype of antichrists. And as a type of antichrists, what did he try to do? What antichrists always try to do? They try to eliminate the Christ and the people of the Christ. If you go to the New Testament, you find this. When Jesus had been born, very, very soon, the king, Herod, the king of the Jews, what did he want to do? He wanted to eliminate the Christ. When Jesus preached in his own city and preached a, an amazingly powerful sermon that had everybody speaking well of him, and then he said something wrong, they wanted to throw him off a cliff, but they were unable to do so. They, several times they picked up stones to stone him, or they sent the, the, the chief priest sent, sent soldiers to go arrest him. But each time, what happened to those people? Each time they were incapacitated. Each time their, their efforts were foiled. They couldn't bring to, to fruition their, their antichrist efforts. Nonetheless, one time, it looked like they had succeeded. One time, finally, they, they were able to arrest him. They were able to, to try him in, a, in an unfair trial. They, they beat him. And, and then they handed him over to the Romans who had the only authority to, to be able to put him to death. And a, and a cowardly governor went along out of fear and a, uh, of the Jews and out of, out of uh, fear for his position. And he, he said that he should be crucified. And then he was handed over to the soldiers and he was led away to a cross on a a place outside of Jerusalem, and he was crucified. It looked like the Antichrist had finally won. It looks like they'd finally, finally, in their conspiracy against the Christ, they'd finally snuffed him out. They'd finally put an end to the Lord and the Lord's anointed one. But what's the, the message we hear preached time and time and time and time again in the New Testament? But God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And so... What do we have? We have 
Now, the Antichrists, they failed with him. The Christ conquered over them. Now we have the Antichrist going after Christ's people and trying to snuff them out. Many times it's looked like the faithful church was on its last leg, that it was about to be snuffed out, that it would be about to be exterminated by Saul of Tarsus, for example, or by by Roman emperors, perhaps, or by unbiblical theology, or by communism, or by unbelief. It looks like sometimes that that the people of the Christ are going to be exterminated. However, each time, each time the Lord has incapacitated the Antichrists, And there are more Christians now around the world in more places than ever in the history of the world. Let's keep reading in Psalm 2. What do we have? The nations are plotting against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart in verse 3. And then in verse 4, we have the response of the Lord. He who sits in the heavens, what does he do? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten me, you. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you know where the ends of the earth are? Pompano Beach, Florida. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to be funny. We are so far away from, from this psalm. And it's amazing that the gospel has gotten even to us here in this remote corner of the world that was not even known in those days by the people who were writing these things. The, the nations have been handed over to the Son, that he might establish his reign in all of them. So, if this is what's happening in the world, if the Antichrists continue to rage, and if the Lord continues to incapacitate them so that his Son, whom he has established as king, might reign over all the nations, how do we respond? Well, Psalm 2 tells us how to respond. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings... Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Love the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what's the message to us? Love the sun. Take refuge in the sun. Because the only place to take refuge from the sun is in the sun. And that's what it says. His wrath is is kindled, but you don't have to experience his wrath. If you will take refuge in the sun, you will be protected from the sun and his wrath. In other words, and I don't mean to be trite, but join the winning team. Love the winner because we already know who the winner will be. And if you've already loved that winner, if you're already identified with the one who will ultimately win, then take heart. Take heart. Because sometimes it looks like the team's losing, doesn't it? Sometimes it looks like we're going in reverse. Sometimes it looks like the 
that the Antichrists are winning. And it, sometimes it looks like the faithful church is on its, its final leg, barely able to stand. But we need to remember this. We need to remember that we don't know in what quarter of the game we are. We don't know how much longer the game is going to last. But we do know what the final score will be. So, so take heart, brothers and sisters. Take heart. The Lord reigns. The Lord will win. So love the Son. Kiss the Son. And, and take heart. And continue to serve the Lord with fear and with love and with rejoicing and with trembling. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the victory of the Christ. That all of the efforts, all of the efforts to undo, to snuff out, to destroy the Christ and his people have failed and will fail. Lord, we declare boldly that you raised Christ from the dead, never to die again. And we declare boldly today that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Lord, I thank you for having mercy on us. We're at the ends of the earth. We were last in line, Lord, but your mercy has gotten even to us so that we might take refuge in the Son. And I pray for us all, O God that we would not lose heart, that we would look to the end, knowing what the final score will be, that the sun will reign over all the ends of the earth. All the nations are his heritage. All the nations are his possession. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us in our lifetime to see great strides for the kingdom, reaching many, many more, and reaching even farther out so that all might bow the knee to Christ and declare him to be your Christ, your anointed one, the Son, the King, the Savior. Amen.